The Wealth Show is sponsored by Invesco. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco. Let's advance together. Capital at risk. Hello, my name is Christopher Johnson and welcome to The Wealth Show from CityWire. In today's episode, I speak with Ali Hussein, Head of Research at Frontier Investment Management Partners. We discuss Mr. Hussein's approach to investing in frontier markets, why he thinks investors should look to unlock their potential, and which countries are the ones to watch for the future. Which specific countries are you bullish on and that are frontier markets? So currently, um, I think Vietnam obviously is a standout and will continue to be. Uh, that, that is one of the markets where we think that, you know, aside from the growth potential, there's also a concurrent impact from, you know, global reopening. Uh, as you know, that Vietnam obviously is a big part of the global uh, value chain in terms of electronics, uh, consumer uh, material, clothing uh, materials, etc., so I think Vietnam is definitely one of the top picks this year. Uh, the one that's sort of contrarian is the Philippines. Um, you know, as you know, Philippines is sort of known as the orphan of ASEAN uh, for a number of reasons because of its size uh, relative to the rest of ASEAN. But I think you, uh, because of the delay in vaccination, uh, where now you're sort of reaching levels where about one third of the population is fully vaccinated and uh, about almost 70% of Metro Manila, you do have the reopening trade over there. You have a sharp GDP rebound expected. Um, and, and the market, obviously, because of, you know, what's happened this year with the, you know, slow rollout has, you know, valuations have compressed from historical levels. So that's number two. And then finally, the last one would be Indonesia. Uh, again, bigger beneficiary of the reopening trade. So what we saw in developed markets this year where, you know, as vaccination levels improve, you saw the rebound, you know, recovery trades playing out. We think uh, Indonesia and Philippines will benefit from those same trades, albeit with a one-year lag. How do opportunities within frontier markets compare to traditional emerging markets? Well, if you think about it, frontier markets are what emerging markets were maybe 15 to 20 years ago, right? Well, if you look at just a very simple metric would be GDP per capita, it's still one third of what is in emerging markets. So the way frontier markets are unique in today's investment environment is the following, that you have, you know, you can still benefit from what we call traditional economy themes. This is, you know, growth of packaged food, uh, the conversion from traditional to modern retail, you know, first time buyers of cars, uh, white goods, durables, etc. And those themes continue to deliver significant growth if you if and if you if you look at the emerging markets may large emerging markets in that in that same aspect you would notice that a lot of that growth has fizzled out as income levels have reached past a certain level so that is one aspect where unlike emerging markets where you're more focused on new economies such as tech renewables and the likes in frontier markets you still have the benefit of that and then the second aspect is the concept of technology right now one would wonder why the tech space, you know, which has dominated the bulk of returns, whether it be the S&P or emerging markets over the last decade, why it didn't kick off in frontier markets at the same time. And the biggest reason was access, right? You, you know, most frontier markets did not see 4G until the start of 2016. Um, smartphone penetration took a longer time to 
to improve simply being because smartphones were too expensive. You know, if you go back to 2015, 2016. So as those, you know, at one point, at one end, you have smartphone penetration increasing. On the other hand, you have increased proliferation of 4G. So between 2016 and now, you've reached that, you know, inflection point where smartphone penetration levels have reached to a level where, you know, tech businesses can essentially take off, right? They've reached the scale, they're able to grow their businesses sustainably, right? So the way I see it is, at least over the next five to 10 years, you know, the next tech bull run will likely come from frontier markets. Did the coronavirus pandemic play into, um, you know, frontier markets achieving that inflection point with technology, I wonder? Most definitely. Um, You know, I think, you know, one thing about frontier markets is that at a country level, the the two challenges they face is financial inclusion. Uh, And in one of the one of the challenges, I'm sorry, is financial inclusion and, you know, and also broadening of the tax base. And because of the restrictions in mobility that the pandemic put, you know, it was a great opportunity for a lot of frontier economies to promote digitization, right? Because of obviously the banks are closed or you can't physically trade money. They encourage digital platforms, you know, to the opening, you know, for the economy to transition to more digital means so that, you know, if there was relief that needed to be given to the population, it would come through these platforms. And we have seen it across all of our markets where governments essentially took a lot of steps to enhance the digital economy, right? And yes, it has played a role uh, in improving uh, uh, digitization from levels from where they were pre-pandemic. You mentioned earlier that Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia are examples of frontier markets that um, you're investing in are interested in. But I was reading that, you know, Iceland has now been named a frontier market. And in comparison to Lebanon, Lebanon has um, basically lost its status as a frontier market because of kind of um, economic and social political upheaval that's taken place over the last um, year. So could you just talk to me about um, about that, about why Iceland has now you know, become a frontier market and what makes... Um, you know, that market, you know, why there's opportunity there and how um, the risks that frontier markets have, which led to Lebanon, obviously, you know, losing its status um, recently. Today, you have Iceland uh, being included, but, but that is based on a capital market liquidity rather than economic development. Um, and at the same time, Lebanon, for obvious reasons, because of FX controls, um, you know, in, inability to trade, uh, you know, which is also one of the reasons, if you may know, that Argentina has now been removed and has become a standalone market. Uh, so Iceland, as I would say, I wouldn't really categorize it as a frontier market per se, even though MSCI categorizes it. Um, hence, uh, although there is opportunity there, but there are, I would say, much more exciting markets in the frontier space, like the likes of a you know, Vietnam or even, you know, Pakistan's a very good example of that. You know, they've been categorized between emerging and frontier by MSCI three times in the last 15 years, where, you know, for two years they're emerging, then three years they're back in the frontier space. So I wouldn't really rely on index provider definition as as the basis of what is and what is not a frontier market. Why do you think um, indexes have maybe missed um, the growth of frontier markets of the last decade, or just kind of maybe, as you were referring to in ISA, maybe misplaced it. Why do you think that is? 
Well, it's because of the way indices are constructed, right? Today, if you look, you know, if you take a very practical lens and you look at way, the way the frontier market index is constructed, almost 70% of the frontier market index is between banks, capital goods, and uh, conglomerates and real estate, right? Now, but if you think about it very practically, this, this, these markets are home to where, uh, countries where 65% of the population is below the age of 35. Where is the consumer? Where's the health? Where's the education? Where's the technology? And again, this comes back to, you know, how you define the eligibility criteria for market. And I want to delve into that. And, but because of these imperfections, you see that the frontier market index has actually underperformed emerging markets where the sectoral diversity of the index is much better, right? You have the names of likes of Alibaba, Tencent, uh, you know, names which, you know, if you look at an, any active gem manager's portfolio, you're likely to find. But if you were to do the same comparable analysis, it's very rare that you see most of the top 10 index name in the frontier market index being in an active fund manager's portfolio. How much of a portfolio should an investor um, allocate to um, frontier markets, would you say? I can, because of the size of frontier markets, you also have to be realistic, right? The, you you know, frontier markets today are 7% of global GDP uh, versus about 45% for emerging markets. And obviously that also translates to capital market size. So, I mean, if I were to take that same metric, I mean, as a rule of thumb, and then look at the outperformance, I, I think a 10% allocation in a portfolio to frontier markets is not unreasonable because you're able to not only, you know, participate in diversified uncorrelated returns that frontier markets offer, but at the same time, you're able to manage liquidity as well, which is, I guess, you know, it, it raises a very important part that there's a big misconception about frontier markets being this, you know, a very illiquid asset. And a lot of investors have had bad experiences in countries such as Nigeria in 2014, et cetera. But, but then again, that's, it's about picking your manager uh, and how they, you know, allocate their portfolio. I'm quite interested in kind of getting your perspective more on, you know, the risks that come with investing in frontier markets. But when I was, you know, doing research on you, um, you mentioned that, you know, a lack of research on frontier markets can also magnify and exacerbate the risk. So I was just interested in um, getting your opinion on that. You know, how is maybe, I don't want to say an ignorance, but maybe a, a lack of knowledge on frontier markets, how does it impact, you know, investors' willingness to put their money into, into them? That's a very good question. As, you know, it's because of the lack of research or under-research aspect of frontier markets, the biggest issue that comes is that people can just simply read headlines and, you know, they can be quite disturbing at times. But, you know, I, when I, you know, I've been in these markets for 20 plus years right now. And, you know, it, it, one of the things I always say is that to experience frontier markets, you have to go on the ground and, and see the reality. You don't, you can't just rely on, on, on the headlines. But, you know, it seems that Frontier gets a bad name, but then if I look even across emerging markets, the likes of Brazil, Russia, you know, South Africa during the Jacob Zuma period, these countries all suffered from macro or geopolitical strife during these periods. But it was, it was okay because they were deemed emerging markets, you know. And the same risk is, you know, magnified when people think about it in the context of Frontier. Yes, frontier markets do have risks. You, you do have to be a little bit more sensitive to geopolitical and you know, macro risk because they, there, is, there are relatively immature 
political regimes or economic regimes, which may not be doing what's best in the interest of a country from a top-down perspective. With that said, though, I think just like an emerging market portfolio, you know, you're not running an, a benchmark or an index fund. You're an active manager. You can choose to be in any country you want to or choose not to be. Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever, from digesting market and economic data to probing new trends and ideas. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. With a proven past and an eye on the future, we bring the latest thought-provoking investment analysis and diverse ideas directly to professional investors. Visit Invesco.com. What do you say to those who might say that um, fronting markets are too small for investors to take a risk on? You know, if if you it's how you define your frontier investable universe, right? Now, the way, I mean, I can give from a practical example is if you look at the size of the index, it actually does look pretty small. I think maybe 10% of what emerging markets are. But if you actually have a capacity constraint strategy in which you set liquidity thresholds, your investable universe actually grows much more. Uh, than what the index sort of represents, which again is a fallacy of index construction. So if I look at the size of our investable universe vis-a-vis the index, it's actually about 25 to 30% bigger and also significantly more diverse because we're able to capture some of the secular themes I mentioned earlier, which define you know, the young populations, the fast-growing economies, um, you know, and the rap, you know, the changing consumption habits of uh, these, you know, young populations, which the index is unable to capture. I wanted to ask if maybe you have an example of when you maybe have been told something about a country and then you've got on the ground and it's been very different to, you know, the perception. Is, is there been an example, like a standout one um, of where kind of the market was, you know, doing really, really well and those who were telling you maybe it's not right, don't do it, were eventually wrong? So uh, this is a good one. So I, um, in 2014, it was uh, my, my first trip to Kenya. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing was that we were looking at Safaricom, which is, a, as you may be aware, is one of the most successful mobile money platforms in the world. And I remember before my trip, I was warned by everyone, okay, the safety situation in Kenya is so bad, you don't need to be on the ground, etc. You know, there's economic risk, political risk. But we saw a business which we felt, you know, there was so much growth potential and what it could achieve and what it was achieving at the time. And it was at a very nascent stage at that. And being on the ground, you know, I'll give you a very practical example. I I sat in a cab and I asked, you know, I always talk to my cab driver because I, that's the common man. He, they are the consumer. You know, if you, you know, you ask them and I asked him a question and I said, uh, have you heard of this app called M-Pesa? And he turned around at me and he gave me this look and he said to me, it's not an app, it's a way of life. And that answer itself gave me something to understand what is the brand equity of this business? What have they built here, right? And at that time, not a lot of people understood what Safaricom was. They thought it was a telecom company running us, you know, some pseudo fintech businesses, 2013, 14. But but that is the thing, right? You, we went with the perception that we're looking at a telco company with a potential fintech aspect. And today, that fintech aspect is the, the bulk of the valuation. And this is a business that has delivered a 20% annualized return since 2014. 
And you mentioned that now is, you know, the best time to get into frontier markets. Could you talk to me a little bit about why that is? So Pakistan, another great example, you know, the investment in startup seed funding has in this year is equivalent to the last five years combined, right? So, and you, you, we, we're seeing this in Africa, uh, Bangladesh, uh, Philippines, for example. So the one the thing we... Uh, our belief is that the next five to 10 years, you, the reason it's very interesting with frontier markets is because you are finally seeing green shoots of where the listed tech space is, is about to grow ex- exponentially. I mean, just out, out of research we've done on upcoming potential deals, I mean, you have you know, IPOs coming, which represent approximately 232 million unique subscribers. Uh, which are generating close to $300 billion in transaction value. And this is growing at about, I would say, uh, 20 to 30% a year. So I think we've come to that inflection point where the tech space in Frontier has reached a point where they can come to the capital markets. Um, and then there's the other aspect of Frontier markets, which is interesting, is, is that unlike the developed world, where you had an instance where technology was a disruptor, meaning traditional businesses, brick and mortar, retail got disrupted by you know, the likes of the Amazons, et cetera. But that's not what happens in frontier markets. It's because of two things. Number one, because there is still so much growth, for example, modern retail to grow, that that pie can still be you know, split between tech and traditional retailers and still both can continue to grow in the same space. And, you know, a good, an example of this is automotive sales, right? You know, with the likes of Uber and Lyft, the reason they hurt U.S. automotive sales was because 57% of U.S. households at the time had cars, right? So what they would do is they would abandon one car and the cost of operating it because now there's a convenience. There's Lyft, there's Uber, et cetera. But in frontier markets, you know, only not even 5% of households own an automobile. But now they actually buy a car because they realize they can actually make money out of it by becoming an Uber driver or Lyft driver, et cetera. So, which brings you to a very interesting thing that technology will not be a disruptor. It becomes an enabler in frontier markets. And we've seen this across our markets where automotive sales are going through the roof and you wouldn't understand why because income levels haven't gone up. It's because there's a new class of buyer, the one who thinks that an, a car is a means of income rather than just a means of transport. And then lastly, you know, across our portfolio, what we're seeing is traditional economy players, whether it's hospitals that are running telehealth, education players with digital platforms, um, supermarkets, which have come out with their own e-commerce apps. So you don't have to wait for the next Amazon to come from frontier markets. It's actually the traditional players who've realized that you know, I would rather be, you know, embrace the, this behavioral evolution and become part of the disruptors than become the disruptor. Could you name me uh, like another specific company or a startup that you're, you know, really excited about? So actually in the listed space, there there's some really exciting stories. And again, this is the beauty of frontier markets because they're under research. You don't see a large amount of investors investing or even being cognizant of them. Um one of our investments, which has done really well for us, is a digital platform out of Kazakhstan. So a lot of people will first have to find Kazakhstan on a map, but this is actually a $23 billion company. This started off as a brick-and-mortar bank, which decided that they 
wanted to go digital in 2007. So this, this talks about foresight of management, which said in 2007, the future is being digital. So today they are a digital bank, which have an e-commerce platform marketplace, similar to Amazon. And then you have the fintech payment arm. And this business is growing easily 30 to 40% a year. And you know the beauty of Kazakhstan is that this is a country which has above 70% smartphone penetration, but e-commerce is still 2 to 3%. Um, so that's one name we're really excited about. And another one is uh, a company called Airtel Africa. So this is a traditional you know, telco, mobile telco operator operating in 14 countries, $6.5 billion market cap. And similar to what Safaricom did, they have a mobile money uh, arm, which is actually growing again, 20 to 30% a year. And most people sort of ignore this business because it's actually listed in London and you know it's considered a penny stock, but a business that can deliver the growth that they do where you know your subscribers are growing at 12% a year. And most recently they got a uh, mobile money license in Nigeria. Now, historically, Nigeria has been about one third of their customer base, about 40 million subscribers who they could not offer digital money to, you know, digital wallets to till uh, about two weeks ago. So there's a huge growth story coming in there where today you can offer to 40 million subscribers a service that you've been offering to the remaining 80 million. So again, two really exciting stories um, that were like Caspi um, and Airtel Africa. I also wanted to get your kind of perspective on regulation and how that can, you know, be positive for frontier markets or could it be negative? What was your perspective on that? So, you know, if we look at what happened uh, in China, what's happened in China this year, th that's a very good example where regula regulations can actually hurt the tech sector. But frontier markets is the exact opposite because frontier economies, as I mentioned earlier, have two issues, tax collection and uh, financial inclusion, right? How can you tax someone when you don't know their transactions, right? I mean, it's, it's a chicken and egg situation, so to speak. And then if in these countries where less than 20% of adults own a bank account, you really cannot track the economy. But where these governments have realized that the middle ground is that if you encourage digitization, you'll be able to understand how people transact and how what, what their actual spending and income is, right? And that is what we are seeing across our space, countries like Vietnam actually have a formal digital transformation policy where they want digital transactions to be, you know, a much higher part of, of, of GDP. They want, they have specific targets for a number of digital accounts, uh, people having e-wallets and how to, most importantly, how to change the infrastructure, uh, you know, you know, so that X amount, X percent of people should have broadband access, how many people need to have smartphone penetration, et cetera. What is your you know, policy on ESG? How does that relate to you know, frontier markets? And you know, how fundamental do you think that frontier markets will be as we're transitioning towards a green economy? What, what are your perspectives on that? Mm -hmm. So in our process, we actually run a two-part process. One is that we have an, ex we have an exclusionary uh, methodology where we don't invest in certain sectors based on you know, if they're SIN stocks. And then the second aspect is we don't invest in companies where there have been violators who've been of the UN Global Compact in terms of bribery, corruption, uh, environmental reasons. Um, and I think from a frontier perspective, that's very important because corporate governance standards have not yet reached to where developed markets are. So 
um, sustainability adds an additional filter for due diligence. It's not, it should not, uh, by the way, we never, we don't consider ESG as separate. In fact, in house, we call it due diligence because it is part of the process. The second process is integration where we actually, um, you know, work with companies to, we have a proprietary scoring process. In fact, we have one for each sector we invest in. So it's not a generalized uh, form, you know, analysis. It's actually, we look at material factors in each sector and incorporate it, um, you know, when we evaluate companies. And this gives us an opportunity to, in fact, build our own internal KPI, ESG KPI database. Uh, And this is very helpful in our markets because, you know, global research providers don't really cover frontier markets from a sustainability perspective or their coverage is not that deep. So having that internal KPI data, ESG KPI database and knowing the things we know about companies, it's very important because one, it's an under-researched aspect class, maybe from from a valuation or stock perspective. But when it comes to sustainability fundamentals, that under research aspect is even more magnified. So that is how we do uh, everything. But the most important thing I would say is engagement. You know, ESG became a buzzword maybe, you know, two to three years ago. So as investors, we need to be the ones who are educating these companies. You know, just because a company doesn't understand something about an aspect of the environment, sustainability should not be a reason to knock them. More importantly, it should be, are they willing to engage in an open dialogue with you and are willing to make those changes? So when it comes to, you know, the the green energy transition, do you see potential or, you know, what do you say to those? um, Because there's a lot of, um, you know, criticisms around when it comes to trying to curb, you know, um, CO2 emissions. How can we tell, you know, frontier markets, emerging markets who are, you know, were poorer to not use oil, to not use, um, you know, carbon fuels in order to kind of industrialize and to, you know, um, heighten their, you know, economic output when we in the West, the developed world have done that. So, you know, what are the discussions around that in frontier markets? And do you see them actually taking, you know, um, you know, reducing emissions seriously in in, um, how they are, you know, working? Mm -hmm. If you look at the bulk of frontier markets, they are net energy importers. Right, uh, they import you know fossil fuels for commercial industrial production. So there would there is an inherent bias from a capital or balance of payment perspective to reduce those imports. And let's not forget these are very fast growing economies, so their energy needs continue to magnify. What has positively surprised us is even now, despite uh, you know what would we say is you know energy deficits or etc frontier economies are actually proactive towards moving towards a greener future. An example is Philippines. It has recently banned the production of any more coal power plants. Uh, in Pakistan, they have a renewable energy target uh, where you know, they want to have, I believe, 25% of total production coming from renewable sources within the next 10 years. Um, Vietnam has been making I think this year, if I recall correctly, they actually added 3.4 gigawatts of renewable energy just this year alone. So, and you know, they were all they were offering a very lucrative feed-in tariff to encourage. So, so I think even though they started late, I think frontier markets are catching up very quickly because they realize again there's an environmental benefit of doing so, but also from a balance of payment perspective renewables would work much better than reducing those, you know, expensive fossil fuel imports. The Wealth Show is sponsored by Invesco. 
Today's professional investors are overloaded with more information than ever. At Invesco, we help professional investors see the possibilities ahead by cutting through the noise to the ideas that matter. Visit Invesco.com to see how. Invesco. Let's advance together. Capital at risk.